Let's pray together. Spirit of Jesus, we count ourselves blessed beyond measure. To give praise to your holy name is the highest privilege conceivable. To acknowledge your goodness is a privilege that we can barely fathom. There is a dignity in it that is reserved to those who have been created in your image after your likeness for your glory, to rejoice in your presence forevermore. What a joy it is to know, O oh Jesus, that we can know that you have made us for your pleasure. Lord, the greatest of the stars of the heaven in all of their brilliance and splendor don't even know that they exist, much less for whom they exist. We worship you. We love you. We thank you. We ask you to help us to praise you this morning. You've been doing that all morning, and we don't expect that you're going to stop now. Lord, help us to rejoice in your beauty and to call upon the name of the great and the holy God. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a joy, brothers and sisters to be together in the house of the great and the holy God. I want to talk to you today on the topic, the cost of Pentecost. The cost of Pentecost. And usually when we think of the cost of Pentecost, we think in terms of what we as people of God and people who have been blessed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what it costs or what it takes to enjoy the fullness of that blessing. But that's not really what I want to talk to you about today, even though that's a wonderful topic and we have spoken on those things, and we do. But I'm going to look at it from the perspective of someone, let's just say I was an accountant, right, or a bookkeeper, uh, and I was keeping someone's books, and they had a basic um, budget, and they stuck with that budget ordinarily, and, you know, I'd see a few hundred dollars spent here, and a you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars spent there or whatever the case might be. And let's just say I'm going through the books one day and all of a sudden I notice that there is this withdrawal or this check or something for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. I'm going to think to myself, the first thing I'm going to think to myself is, what did they buy? I'm going to look at the price that they paid and my first question is going to be, what did they buy? They must have bought something wonderful. Now, when you think about what God paid for Pentecost, what he paid so that there could be a new covenant and there could be a new era, that there could be a new Sabbath, when you think about what God paid, it should give us some indication as to the blessings and the benefits that appertain to all those who are the beneficiaries 
of the Pentecostal outpouring. So I think about first what was paid. And the Bible says very clearly, God pretty much paid everything that he had. Imagine that. The God who fills all in all pays everything that he has so that you and I could live a certain kind of life. Now, when I say he paid everything that he has, let me, let me tell you what I mean. First and foremost, God the Father gave us himself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Bible says God is love. Right? It doesn't simply say God loves, even though it says God loves. It ultimately says God is love. So when God loves, he gives himself. He gives not simply of himself. He gives himself. That's why the Bible says the love of God is poured into our hearts by the spirit who lives in us. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the first thing that you and I have to recognize is that God has given us himself. He's given us his covenant love, his covenant loyalty, his covenant faithfulness. He has not held back anything of who he is in the sense of commitment, in the sense of relationship, in the sense of affection, in the sense of loyalty. God has given us himself. And then we see God has given us his son. For God so loved the world, so he's given us himself, that he gave his only begotten son. That is, he has not withheld from us the son of his bosom. He's not withheld from us the apple of his eye. But instead, while we were enemies of God, he gave us his only begotten son. Gave us his son as a sacrifice. So that in choosing to lay down his life, Jesus gave us life instead of the death that we deserved. Jesus took on our death, took on our disease, took on our destruction, took on all that appertained to the rebellion that was essential to our personality after the fall. So God gave us himself, he gave us his son, and he gave us his spirit. He poured out his spirit, he breathed on us and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Choosing to walk with us, choosing to comfort us, choosing to speak to us, choosing to manifest himself in us. 
to glorify his name through us, to identify his name with us, so that his glory, his honor, his dignity, his majesty would be associated with us. This is what God has chosen to do, and this is the price that he was willing to pay. So the cost of Pentecost is unfathomable. The cost of Pentecost is unthinkable. It's, we can never measure it. God has given us himself. He's given us his son. He's given us his spirit. So for us, if we look at it from a bookkeeping perspective, just from an accounting perspective, if we look at the lavish expenditure that was put forward for the sake of our lives, then the question should be, what did he purchase? What does Christianity actually mean? And what are we? And then we begin to remind ourselves that everything he did had to do with the idea of separation, of calling us a separate people, a holy people, calling us saints, calling us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a particular people. Everything had to do with separation. For instance, separating us from the death sentence that appertained to our sin. Freeing us from death. Freeing us from the hopelessness that appertains to the sinful life. And giving us a new hope. Basically saying to us, you don't have to die. Saying to us, Death is no longer looming over you. Death is no longer an inevitability. That means death no longer has any right to you. And if death no longer has any right to you, then none of the things that appertain to death has any right to you. So if you've been freed from sin, then you've been freed from death because the wages of sin is death. And if you've been freed from death, then you've been freed from the fear of death, which the Bible says is the power of Satan. The only power that Satan has in reality is he has the power to manipulate and the power to extort and the power to bribe based on the fact that people are always afraid and always ultimately afraid of judgment and always ultimately afraid of dying, and always ultimately afraid of losing that center spot in the universe. And when we come to the point where we are freed from the need to be at the center of our universe, in other words, when the idea of a self-centered life is no longer a part of us, in other words, when we are no longer defining our life by ourselves, but now we are defining our life by Christ, then all of a sudden death no longer is a fearful thing. Because we've already died in Christ, 
We've been buried with Christ and we've been raised again to live forever. So there is now nothing that the enemy can work with. So Pentecost is this wonderful expression of God's grace that says, I have given you a victory that makes it possible for you to be my martyrs. Now, this is very important for us to grasp. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. You shall be my witnesses. The word there is martyr. And it means someone who is willing to bear witness, especially in the context in which they would have had to bear witness in that particular day. Remember, Jesus was an outlaw. He was killed for treason. And to bear witness to Jesus in that moment would have been a devastating thing, a dangerous thing. Baptism in those days was different than baptism in these days, at least here in America, where a person will be baptized is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, but it did not put you in the same kind of scenario or situation that it would have put you in in those days or in certain countries even today, where automatically it puts you in a place of danger. Same thing with preaching. In those days, if they bore witness to the fact that they identified with Christ, they immediately put themselves in danger, whether it be imprisonment, whether it be cast out of the community, whether it be people not patronizing your business, not being able to get a job, not being able to marry this person that you love, or whatever the case might be, it was a dangerous thing. But if you're not afraid of death, those things don't matter. See, there's something powerful about Pentecost. And Jesus showed us that the kingdom of God looks like that a kind of people who have been set apart to do the work of God without fear. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be a tinge of fear here and there, but they do not live in fear. Fear does not define their existence. You and I are human beings, and we're going to have appropriate emotions to appropriate situations and scenarios, but that doesn't mean that we are going to allow ourselves to be defined by those emotions. So if a thing is fearful, I might be afraid for a moment or so, but I'm not going to live there because there is a power of Pentecost that allows me to go beyond the self and to do the kind of thing that God is asking me to do and to be the kind of person that God is asking me to be. So you understand, for the uh, commission to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, something had to happen, not just outwardly, but something had to happen inwardly. Something has to happen inwardly to be a martyr, and something has to happen inwardly in order for them to witness to the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were their hated rivals, their hated enemies. And yet, there was going to be something that the power of Pentecost allows for. Not just that they would not live under the rubric of sin so as to be 
dominated by fear, but they would not live under the rubric of sin so as to be dominated by hate. But that they would reach out to anyone that God sends them to reach out to. And their arms would be open to anyone that God tells them to invite in. You see, there's a close correlation between the fear of death and hate. A close, very close correlation between fear and hate. Especially between fear and hate that is based on race or culture or ethnicity. There comes a time when we have to recognize that Jesus paid an incredible price. That God paid an incredible price that we might be able to open our hearts to every person. That we might be able to show mercy to all people. That we might be able to manifest the power of Pentecost in a generation that is as divisive as it has ever been. That we might be able to recognize that all people should receive this gospel message with tender love and affection, not just based on race and creed and color and so on and so forth, but also based on political affiliation. Everybody should receive the same kind of opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's been such a high price paid that that kind of a thing could happen and that kind of a thing should happen. High price paid so that we could have victory over sin and victory over self and victory over Sheol, which is death, and victory over Satan. Where the devil has nothing to work with in the Christian mind, nothing to work with in the Christian heart. He can't find anything to grab hold of, nothing to manipulate, nothing. Because we are not trying to build a world around ourselves, and we're not trying to build a wall around ourselves. But we're doing everything that we can to be the kind of people that God can use to reach out wherever he asks us to reach out. That's based on the high price that was paid. But the awesome thing about it is there is this wonderful blessing that comes when we choose to do what God has asked us to do and when we choose to be who God has asked us to be. And that blessing radiates outward. For instance... He says, you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the first thing that I'm looking at as I realize not just what we've been uh, saved from, but, but all the things that we've been saved for and all the things that appertain, all the things that, as if you will, that are in our account, all the things that are in our bank account. Think about this one reality, for instance. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There is this sense of communion with God. This proximity of personality where God is with you all the time. Where everything that God is asking you to do, he is asking you to do it with him. And everything that he's asking you to be, he is with you, molding you and shaping you so that there is absolutely nothing that you are and nothing that you do that is in your own strength. That's why the Bible says that it's God who is working in you both to will 
and to do for his good pleasure. There is something wonderful about the knowledge that God paid everything so that he could be your friend. He lavished love upon you so that he could walk with you every day. Imagine that. Imagine anyone wanting to be your friend so much that they take everything that's theirs and they lavish it out upon you. And they simply say, I just want to do whatever it takes to put you in a position that you can receive my love. Because God knew that unless he did what he did, no matter how much he wanted to love us, we were going to reject him. We were going to turn away from him. And he realized that only by giving us himself could we receive himself, if that makes sense. In other words, God knew that it took a special grace to cause us to realize that we were able to receive special grace. I'll say it more specifically. We had been lied to. And we had been told that God hated us. Or that God deserted us. God was exasperated with us. Didn't want to hear from us anymore. Tired of us. Nobody could come and convince us otherwise. Nobody but God. So God realized that the only way we would be open to the fullness of his love is if he could express such an overture of love that we could not deny it. That it would override every lie we had ever heard. So you compile every lie you and I ever heard about God, every lie the devil has ever told us from day one on that one side. And then you put the cross on the other side. And on the cross, what you see is God expressing his great love to us. Telling us how important it is that we befriend him. Telling us and showing us how important it is that we are able to love him and live for him. Telling us how important it is to him that we walk in victory. That we live in newness. Showing us that this is not a game. That it's not wish fulfillment. Thank you. But it's real. So all of a sudden, we're looking at Pentecost. We already saw the cross. Now we're seeing the outpouring of the Spirit. And we're beginning to see something, a pattern. And it's kind of like that father in the prodigal son story. Who's laying out everything. And remember the son comes back after having lived his life a certain way. 
And he's coming back and he's going to make all these promises to his father. I'm not worthy of being called your son. Just let me, you know, do this thing. Let me do that thing. The father never even allows him to speak. Before he can even speak, the father's already draped over him. The father's already putting the robe on him. The father's already killing the calf for him. The father's already putting the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. And it's the same with us. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that son, if the father had not acted the way he had acted, that son might have believed that he was forgiven, but he would never have believed that he was loved. Never. He might have believed that he had a place to live, but he would never have believed that he had a home. When we look at the lavish expenditure, the cost of Pentecost, what God actually paid for us, we should not simply feel forgiven as in, I'm happy I'm not going to go to hell and I'm happy that I don't have to be addicted to this and addicted to that and, and so on and so forth and, and somehow think that's the essence of Christianity. When you look at the price that was paid, you realize he bought a whole lot more than that. Hallelujah. We don't just have a place to live, we have a home. We don't just have forgiveness, we have relationship. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That is to say, God is sharing with you and with me his authority. That's trust. It's not simply God saying, you can come in, but I'm going to keep my eye on you all the time, and I'm going to be nitpicking all the time because I don't trust you. God is saying, no, 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 I trust you. Remember, Jesus said, all authority is given unto me, therefore go. I send you. Remember, the father puts the signet ring on his son's hand. You shall receive power. God trusts you with his name, trusts you with his authority, trusts you to impact this generation, trusts you with his spirit, trusts you with the authority of his son. God trusts you because he poured himself out to you. And he knows you. Remember, Peter, after having heard Jesus say the third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter finally said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And I'm thinking, of course, Jesus knows that Peter loves him. Because the Bible says the love of God has been poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God knows I love him because he gave me that love. He gave me the capacity to love him. So he knows we can be trusted. Because he gave us the capacity to be trusted. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. That is to say, you are going to live the kind of life 
that bears witness to God. Yeah? When God says, do this thing, he's not simply giving us a command. Do you understand? If I were to say to you, do this thing, or you were to say to me, do that thing, you're giving me instruction, or you're giving me a command, or you're giving me a directive, and that's the extent of it. Or you might have a certain amount of authority in a certain area, and you might say, hey, for instance, if Pastor Carter calls me and asks me if I would speak here at the church, he has authority to ask me to speak here at the church. But as far as God is concerned, when God says, do this thing or that thing, it's like God saying, let there be light. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Pastor Carter calls me and he says, would you speak on a Sunday morning? That's an invitation, and I am very, very grateful for it every time. But there's a second voice, right? And it's God who says, would you speak on, at Times Square Church on Sunday morning? When God says it, there's something else that happens. you understand? There is an infusion of grace that empowers me with the message, that gives me something specific for this community because when God gives a directive, he also gives the grace to obey. So when God says, you will be my witnesses, he's not saying muster up the courage to go out and tell somebody about Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to give you the courage that you need. I'm going to give you the strength that you need. I'm going to give you the power that you need. I'm going to give you the wisdom that you need. I'm going to send the right people, the people that are ready to hear. I will go to them before I send you to them. So that by the time you get to them, you're simply corroborating something that God has already said to them. God has already spoken to them on some level or another. Remember, the Bible says the spirit is in the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God and so on and so forth. God is already speaking to them. By the time we get to them, all we have to do is not blow it. Right? You know what I'm <laughs> I mean, pretty much, just make sure we say what God says. <laughs> right? So when it finally comes down to it, when God says to us, you will be my witness. You are going to live a kind of life that blesses God. You, you are going to be victorious over this thing or that thing. You're going you're to get the victory over this thing or that thing. He, he's not saying to us, I'm advising you and commanding you only but I'm helping you. I'm strengthening you. I'm taking you by your hand and I'm walking you through this thing. Because on one level, the victory is already ours because of the lavish expenditure, because of the great cost, because of everything that Jesus has already done, because of everything that the Spirit is already doing, because of everything that the Father has already given. We just have to remind ourselves that what God bought on that tree, what, what Jesus purchased on Calvary, what the Spirit has afforded us, what the Father has done for us is so remarkably expensive that there's no way to look at the blessings as anything but magnificent. 
to, to reach out and impact the entire world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. When it finally comes down to it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop in a moment, but I, I want to say something to you. When I, when I started to open my Bible, when I first started to read it, everybody has a hermeneutic when they approach the Scripture. Hermeneutic basically means a perspective on the Scriptures, right? Because whatever your hermeneutic is, that's how you're going to interpret the text of Scripture. So if I see the Bible as a living, breathing book, the Word of God, I'm going to interpret it like that. I'm going to hear it talking to me. I'm going to believe what it says. It's going to cause me to get hopeful about some wonderful things, and I'm going to start trying to live those things out, you know? Well, that's my hermeneutic. I, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that every jot, every tittle is God's Word. My whole life revolves around that book. I am a person of the book. I believe the Bible before I believe anything else, and if anything disagrees with the Scripture, it's wrong. I believe the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God. So when I see things in it, I want to do it. I just want to try it. I'm like, why not me, right? You know, I mean, if, if it's not, if it doesn't fit me, it doesn't fit me. But I'm going to at least try it, right? Because not everybody has their gift. So I see a gift in the scriptures. I'm like, I'm, I want to see if I have that gift. You know what I mean? So I mean, I, I'm telling you, I've seen signs and wonders because I've tried stuff. You know, then other things, you know, I've heard God say no. You know what I'm saying? It just ain't your gift. What can I say? It's not my gift. I remember one time, I would try things. I tell people this all the time. The time I tried to walk on water. Did I tell you about that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I did. I figured, I figured I'd start small, so there was like a little puddle. You know what I mean? <laughs> I figured I'd start small and work my way up, right? You know? But it turned out to be an oil slick. So... <laughs> Suffice to say, I didn't try walking on water anymore. But, 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 you know, what I'm trying to say is when I read the Bible and it tells me that we can change the world, I believe it. I believe it. And I started reading the Bible when I was in my preteens. Yeah, and I'm 55 now. I believe it more now than I did then. I believe more now that we can change the world than I did then. Because I've seen too many things now. I've experienced too much. For me to not believe now would be, it would be crazy. I've just seen too much. Now, what I'm trying to suggest is if I think about what was paid, then the thought that I can change the world, that you can change the world, that doesn't seem like such a mismatch. When I think about what God did, it doesn't seem strange that we should be able to take what Jesus did, what, what God did. We, it doesn't seem like we should feel strange about that being enough to change the world. So I'm just asking God to help me to recognize the cost of Pentecost. From the idea of changing the world to the idea of overcoming some flaw or some failure, right? From something that is atomic to something that's universal. It doesn't matter. It's all, by comparison to what God did, 
It all fits under that canopy. And you and I can change the world, and we can change within. They had to change within in order to reach the Samaritans, because they didn't love the Samaritans. They had to change within in order to reach the Gentiles. They didn't love the Gentiles. But they also changed the world. We wouldn't be sitting here 2,000 years later if they didn't. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. I, I was talking to the Lord, right, before I started to, to preach, and I thought to myself, okay, you know, at, at, at some I teach a lot, right? So that's what we do. We, you, Pastor Nick, myself, you know, we, we're teachers, right? So we teach a lot here when we come for the 3 o'clock service. So, right? That's what, you know, and then say if we were here at 6 o'clock, you know, um, Pastor Dave, you know, we, we'd, we would do evangelism because it's an evangelistic service. The morning service is usually called, you know, worship service. So I thought to myself, I could teach in the morning, you know, and I like to teach. But I was talking to the Lord and said, Lord, you know what? It's a worship service. I, I'm, I don't really want to teach and I don't want to try to persuade this morning. I just, I want to take a few minutes and I just want to worship God. And usually when we think about worshiping God, we think about singing songs. And that's cool too, but I, I thought, you know what? I just want to think about who he is and what he's done. And to some degree, how that impacts me, but I really just wanted to think about what he paid, what the Lord did. I just wanted to honor him this morning. I just wanted to remember him this morning. If, if this was a communion, like a communion Sunday or something like that, I would probably try to condense this into a couple of minutes. But I would still try to say it. And I'm going to ask you, this is one of those kind of times when the altar call is not, you know, if you have this, you know, struggle, let's pray together, which is a wonderful thing. But that wouldn't be for this particular altar call. Or if you're going to commit to this, let's, you know, pray together. It wouldn't be that either. It would be simply if, you want to honor God and just thank him. And just for a few minutes, side by side with your brother and sister, remember. Remember what he is to us. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Remember how good he is. Adam and Eve in the garden, there was one battle. Is God good, yes or no? That was the battle. We know God is good. And sometimes it's just good to say it. And it's good to say it to him. To just say, God, I know you're good. And I just want to celebrate that. I just want to thank you and love you and bless you. That's something that's not really, and we'll say this and we'll pray together, that's something that's not super duper popular because we're very pragmatic people in America and, you know, the whole idea is, okay, something's got to happen when we do this thing or something's got to happen. 
Not really. Can't we just love on Jesus for a bit and thank him for who he is? Let's stand together in the house of the Lord and give glory and honor to the great God. If you want to stand in his presence and you want to declare to anybody here, might be some people here who don't know Jesus and they might want to see what it looks like when his people bear witness to him and give him honor. But even if it's not, you just want to love on Jesus and you just want to stand side by side with your brother and your sister. Life is out. It's difficult sometimes out there. You got an opportunity to just come on in here and just thank God. Just thank God. Bless God. Worship God. Look at Paul. Sometimes he's writing these letters and they just seem so heavy and so, you know, so much stuff. And then all of a sudden he just breaks into worship. Breaks into thanksgiving and then thinking, yeah, that's where it's at. That's where it's at. If God is speaking to you and you just want to look at him and tell him, I remember. I realize what you paid. Then come to the front of this auditorium and bear witness, brothers and sisters. A church is not always about getting something done. Sometimes it's just about loving on Jesus and blessing his holy name. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise his holy name. Hallelujah. The highest call that I could possibly think of is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then to love one another in Jesus' holy name. Father, we do love you. Thank you so much. We don't even know how to put into words how grateful we are. We only know that even our gratitude is a work of grace. And we have to say thank you for the privilege of being thankful. Thank you, God, that you have been truly God to us. Thank you that you've walked us through all of our difficulties and all of our hardships. Thank you that you've never left us to our own devices, never left us to our own strength. Thank you, God, that we can look to you in our times of weakness and we can bow down before you in our times of victory. Thank you, God, that everything that we are can be ascribed to you, that all of our hope, all of our dreams, every aspiration is laid in your hands, in your nail-scarred hands. Thank you, God, that we don't have to make our own way in this generation. Thank you that we don't have to walk in fear we don't have to walk in doubt that we are not engulfed by hatred, but that our hearts are open to love and to mercy and to tenderness. Thank you, God, that you have given us your character, your personality. Thank you that we have the mind of Christ because of the indwelling spirit. 
Thank you, Jesus, that we can be life to our communities, that we can be strength to our families. Thank you, God, that we can change this generation, not to our own image and likeness, but according to the glory of the great and the holy God. We thank you, Jesus, that in your name is life and liberty. In your name is strength and truth. In your name is hope and peace. In your name is victory and liberty. God, you are great to us. You are merciful. You are powerful. All that we are is found in you. Now, God, we ask that you strengthen this community, that you cause your name to be glorified in it, that you cause your praise to redound in it, that the name of Jesus be exalted above it, that all power and principality bow down to it, let the name of Jesus be exalted forever. Let his name go forth in this generation. Until men and women bow down once again and acknowledge that yours is the power and the majesty and the kingdom and the glory and the authority and the dominion both now and forevermore. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Hallelujah. 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 Glory to God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Glory to your holy name, O oh Jesus. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. We love you so much. God be with you.